Well, as of last week, Babylon is now a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Bet you're just so excited to hear that, huh? Bet you you're just, I've already called your travel agent to book a flight over there, right? Let's go check it out. That's your next vacation, right? Yeah. It's on everyone's bucket list, I'm sure. The thing is, you might find it a little difficult to get there. You see, Babylon is in Iraq. And from what I see in the news, it's not, uh, not exactly the safest place to uh, go as a tourist yet. And then if you were to go there to see it, uh, you might be disappointed. Um, from what I saw on a, on a news report, uh, there isn't much left of that great empire. The Tower of Babel, you know, the one you know, we spoke about that a few weeks ago. The Tower predates the Babylonian Empire by a long shot, and it's just a pile of dirt. And in the 1980s, Saddam Hussein had his archaeologists gather all the bricks they could find of the old city that made up the old city and reassemble them into new fortresses and walls. But the project was done so amateurishly that some of it looks like it's a set out of Disney's Aladdin movie. But something good may come from UNESCO's decision to add Babylon to its site list, namely... If things do calm down over there, more people will go and see it. Stand on the spot where it all happened. And it's already gotten an extra measure of protection in hopes that more tourism and research will be done done there. Christians, Jews, and all people will be able to add it to their tours of the Holy Land. But you may be thinking, who cares? I'm a Christian Living in Oregon, it's 2019, what does Babylon have to do with me? Just give me Jesus and my hour of church on Sunday. As many hours as you've participated in the worship life of the church on Sundays, you've heard countless times the prophets of God speaking words of impending doom and judgment as well as consolation and restoration. And the majority of it it has to do with Israel's captivity in Babylon, hundreds of miles away from their beloved capital of Jerusalem in 538 B.C. and lasting for 70 years. In worship and Bible studies and your own personal reading, you've spoken the cries of the people and the prophets for mercy in the face of hardship and joy at the promise of a return to Jerusalem and the kingdom restored. It's out of this family of God's people, Israel, out of this history that Jesus is born. It's His family. It's His history. And when the Spirit gives you faith and Jesus adopts you into His family, then you get Him, His family tree, and all His family baggage. Now, I've seen it, you've seen it, when people show interest in their family history, especially when they learn that their ancestors were slaves in this country in the 1800s, or they were ancestors, uh, or their ancestors were imprisoned in concentration camps during the war, or part of many mass evacuations and displacements of people across the globe throughout the ages. People are interested in that. 
Right? Concordia University Portland has a, an entire research library devoted to the Volga River Lutherans. Do you know who they are? Okay, well, yeah, they were Germans who were recruited by Russia in the 1800s to immigrate there. But when Germany invaded Russia 100 years later, the Russians deported the whole Volgan population because they feared they might collaborate or sympathize with Germany. Kind of like what we did around the same time with Japanese Americans. Except we didn't deport them, we confined them. So no matter your cultural or ethnic background, we Americans are no strangers to slavery, deportation, internment, displacement, mass evacuation. I mean, it's, it's in our family history somewhere. And as Christians, the Israelites are our family. They're our ancestors too. So whatever they went through is our family history. They were slaves in Egypt, Assyria, and Babylon. Each time it was at the hand of God for His purposes, so that His people would turn to Him, trust Him, and believe Him. And each time wasn't a complete destruction either, or a complete restoration. There was still more that God would do to restore His people. Now, the arrival of Jesus as the Messiah is, you know, I mean, that's the pinnacle of the restoration, right? Since all things are restored through Him, but there's still yet more to come. You and I are guaranteed eternal life and a place on the new earth in the new heavens, just as surely as if, as if, it were, as if we were there right now. Yet, we're not there, are we? This, this is part of our eternal life. This is where it begins. And this is where we find ourselves today, hearing these words from so long ago that continue to inform and give faith to millions of people, including you and me, and generation after generation. We're not, we're not exactly in the same situation as Israel, 5th century B.C., but as they did, we await the return of from a kind of exile. We await the restoration of all things. And it's even getting more apparent that we need restoration not only for our own bodies and souls, but also this planet that God made for us to live on. It groans too under the curse of sin. Just ask anyone in Southern California right now. The earth is disruptive and sometimes destructive to human life. Along with that, along with all that we can't control, our pursuit to make habitable places for humans and more food and more industry and more waste disposal, we grieve over the spoiling of it and the loss of some of its beauty. We want complete restoration too, don't we? Just like Israel. It'll happen. God's promised it'll happen. In the meantime, he consoles and comforts us with his word. And just within our text today from Isaiah that you have here in your folder, which is just a tiny fraction of an entire message, we have this beautiful image of a mother nursing her child. Now, it's kind of, it's kind of funny because all of my commentaries and all of my 
resources I use for preaching say the same thing about these verses. Don't preach about the consoling breast. It's too controversial in today's society. Stay away from it. I think we're all grown up enough to appreciate this metaphor of a picture of the way God cares for us. Not that he's our mother, but that he would sustain his people and carry them through life through their capital, Jerusalem. You know, that's where the temple is. That's where the priests are. That's where the synagogues are. That's where the word is proclaimed. That's where the food is bought, sold, and distributed. The nation is governed from there. You get the picture, right? God's people will slurp with delight from her glorious abundance. That's more what the Hebrew word is here for drink. It's stronger than drink. It's a word that means to have water or drink emptied on you. You ever stood under a waterfall and just let the water just gush right in on your face, into your mouth? You ever done that? You've got to be careful what size of a waterfall it is. Otherwise, it'll drown you. But, you know, the smaller ones. You ever done that? You know? Well, you listen, you've got you to put that on your bucket list rather than Babylon, okay? When you do that, you don't really drink, you slurp. Because the water's just gushing all over your face. Our English translators of the Bible, though, slurp. You can't use a word like that. So they use drink. But that's what God wants you to know. That's how he gives his provision and his blessings to people. He pours it out. Those were comforting words to Israel who didn't have much in abundance except misery. How about you? We have abundance of so much in this country, and yet we still feel we lack something. We grumble and complain. We abuse things. We profane, insult, assault. You wonder what would we be like if we were in real exile, like Israel. You know, a physical as well as a spiritual exile. Would there be more people believing in God? Or would people become more hard-hearted, believing God had truly abandoned them? I don't know. It's something to think about. Israel, at the time of her exile in Babylon, had the promise of Jesus, and belief in that was enough to save. Today, we have Jesus, and belief in Him saves. The story of exile and restoration picks up again in the New Testament with the person, life, and ministry of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we are called to believe in Him. The promise in Isaiah is fulfilled in the ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus is, by extension, Israel reduced to one person. He fulfills the, pur- the purpose of that nation. Not the current nation of Israel. That's a secular political country with boundaries. I'm talking about the old Israel in the Bible. God set that nation up to be a light to the world and show the world He was God and they would be His people. Jesus is the light of the world now. He's the city on the hill that all the nations will turn to and know He is God. And although repentance and forgiveness of sin is now preached everywhere in Jesus' name, 
Instead of the old temple and the sacrifice system God had given Israel, we also await the final restoration of all things. It's one of my favorite things to do with you as a church, is to, to stand together in this little model, you know, this uh, mini version of the new city, Jerusalem, that will come down from heaven on the last day when all things are made new. I like standing in it with you, declaring together the resurrection of the body, our bodies, on the last day, and saying together that we believe in the life everlasting. So, if we have time left in this world, maybe some of us will get to see Babylon, the ancient city, that ancient city in our family history, which continues to crumble away, but more importantly, Let's keep our hearts and minds fixed on another great city, the new Jerusalem, which awaits us on the new earth, never to crumble away from time or earthquakes, but a perfect place prepared for us by God and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. May you have that peace and joy in this promise and all others that he freely pours out onto you in his name. Amen.